for that prayer. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, we'll conclude verse 2. Jordan touched on that last sentence phrase in chapter 6 verse 2. We'll pick back up there. Um, talk about that a little bit and then look at verses 3 through 10 together. I want to read the text to you now and then uh, we'll pray again for the preaching of God's Word uh, before we dive deeper into the text together. Grace Church, hear the, hear the Word of the Lord from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrines conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's pray for the preaching of God's Word today. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this afternoon to see wonderful things in your Word. And Father, we pray that your gospel come today not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you our aim, our focus, where are we going, um, before we jump back into the text. Here, here's our aim today. This is what we want to see from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 through 10. God has called elders to warn the church of the dangers of false teachers and to encourage the church to believe Christ is enough. God has called elders to warn the church of the dangers of false teachers and to encourage the church to believe Christ is enough. I don't know if you're like me or not, but I find myself from time to time daydreaming. My mind wanders off in all kinds of places all the time. I'm easily distracted. But one of the daydreams that seems to be recurring in my life is this. What if I had $10 million? 
Have you had that daydream? Or you ever had those thoughts? What would I do with $10 million? Perhaps you would use it wisely. You'd pay off your mortgage. You'd set some aside for your children's future. You'd give a large portion to the church to help us build a building, right? Maybe make a few repairs to your house. Maybe even some small upgrades. Make sure that your parents were well taken care of. Perhaps you would invest some back into the community that you live in. Give to a good charity like Confidential Care or Memphis Union Mission. But almost always, in my daydreaming, it ends with just enough money, after all those good things, where I can quit my job and spend a lot of time at my second house on the beach. Well, I'm not 100% sure about your daydreams and how they go, but if you're like me, always nestled at the end of those dreams are desires of my own making that are not born of God. There in those dreams are the ideas that don't consider Christ, at least not contentedly upon Him. My daydreams most often are evidence of discontentment. Paul speaks on the matter of contentment to Timothy in today's text in the midst of what might seem like a strange contrast, a warning against false teachers, and then he jumps into contentment. The real contrast being made is one of true godliness against a form of godliness that is not godly at all. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, that, that last phrase, that last sentence says, teach and preach these principles. The end of verse 2 serves both as a conclusion to the previous instruction that we found in chapter 5 and as the opening to the instruction that is about to come in chapter 6. We are to build, according to chapter 5, a culture of honor in the church. We are to honor one another. We are to honor the elderly, especially the widows and the vulnerable. We're to honor our pastors. And most of all, we are to honor Christ in all things. That's a series of the last four sermons that have been preached here at Grace Church. Paul instructs Timothy to teach on these things. And there is a coming subject that we're about to dive into today that Paul wants Timothy to communicate to the church. Paul wants Timothy to teach and preach principles that address doctrine and godliness. As Jordan pointed out last week, the command given to Timothy is that he would preach and teach. When we teach, we instruct, we explain. Timothy was to carefully instruct the church on good doctrine. He was to explain the gospel and the implications of the gospel on one's life. But he wasn't just to teach on the gospel, he was to preach about the gospel. Let me give you a distinction between the two. When we preach, we exhort, we admonish, we beseech. 
And Timothy was to passionately urge the saints in Ephesus to live in such a way that proves they believe his teaching. Preaching is more than just relaying the facts to God's people. Preaching should affect the hearts of people, motivating them towards godliness. I want the church not to miss the last sentence in verse 2. Don't miss what's there. Your elders' primary responsibility is to preach the truth. Just keep preaching the gospel. Next Sunday, do it again. And the Sunday after that, preach the gospel again. That's our primary responsibility. I'm not saying that's all that we should do. But if any other task infringes upon that responsibility to preach the truth, we should set it aside to preach the truth again next Sunday. Or do everything we can to accomplish both. Church, it's an awkward place to stand in front of you and say, you ought to listen to the teaching of these men when I'm one of them. But as I think about these other brothers that I serve with, they're faithful men, heralding the good news of Jesus Christ faithfully. The elders have a statement of faith to which we adhere. We have a plurality of elders that hold one another accountable. And we have church membership that discerns the will of God. All precautions to see that sound doctrine is always taught and preached at this church. Which really brings us to our first point today. We ought to be aware of the danger of strange doctrines. We ought to be aware of the danger of strange doctrines. Look with me in verse 3. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Well, he says a lot in verse 3. Different doctrines other than the right teaching of God's Word. The gospel is at the heart of good theology. Say whatever you want about theology, have discussions on a lot of subjects, but when it comes to the gospel, you can't get that wrong. It's essential. And all other good theology is birthed out of a right understanding of the gospel. The sound words of Jesus cannot be misconstrued. Yet, false teaching is a real threat to the church. Even if you have a great statement of faith, even if you have faithful men preaching the gospel Sunday in and Sunday out, even if you have a church who has covenanted to live according to these doctrines, false teaching can still creep into the church. False teaching is not just a threat only in certain circumstances or in certain churches where certain governments' structures are in place or certain locations around the world or even among certain cultures. It's a threat to every single church that exists. We must recognize it as a threat because the Bible continually warns us that it's a threat. I was helped by an article on a website called Table Talk Magazine by a guy named Fred Greco. He said there's three avenues to which 
we must be especially alert. This is how false teaching can creep into the church, he says. Here's the three avenues. New teaching. This desire for some new and interesting teaching or doctrine. To discover something that for the rest of Christian history, somehow people have missed. To discover this new teaching. That's one of the ways. The second avenue that he mentions is overreaction. An overreaction to other teaching errors in the church. And the third he mentions is this. Avoiding criticism. Trying to avoid criticism. A desire to avoid being criticized. Particularly the criticism of the world or culture around us. Now let me just say a couple of things about each of those. When it comes to new teaching, some attempt to find new and innovative ways to understand the Bible. For some, there is a need to blaze a path where no one has gone before, teaching the Bible in a way that is not dependent on any predecessor. But the reality is, since the early church, all that has ever been necessary for teaching is found in God's Word. And there's nothing new that we will discover in God's Word that hasn't already been preached by a saint somewhere in some time. As far as overreaction goes, one of those avenues for false teaching to enter the church, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan described the Christian's journey through the valley of the shadow of death as walking between two dangers. A deep ditch on the right and a dangerous quag on the left. And if one moves too sharply in one direction to avoid one danger, one can fall into the opposite danger. Perhaps a current example of this might be the extremes on gender roles that our culture is certainly pushing. And has spilled into the life of many churches. One extreme is promoting the unbiblical role of women as pastors, feminism in the church. And therefore, the knee-jerk reaction and equally errant pendulum swing might be to promote hyper-headship where over-aggressive men sinfully dominate. Neither are okay. We shouldn't promote either one. But perhaps in trying to respond to one, we might become the other or teach the other. And then the third avenue, avoiding criticism, Teaching enters the church when teachers are overly desirous to avoid criticism, especially when that criticism comes from the surrounding culture. Well, our culture is moving at a pretty high clip. It's hard to keep up with the things that they're pushing these days. This is where human nature, especially our sinful pride, comes in. None of us like to be thought of as ignorant or uncultured or uneducated. We don't enjoy being looked down on by others for things that they believe or say, and yet this is a fundamental part of being a Christian, is being able to continue to preach the truth despite whatever pressure we might feel to avoid criticism. To be a Christian means to believe what God's Word says in His Word, and that it's true even if everyone around you disagrees. I love the way Martin Luther states this idea. 
when everyone around him was pressuring him, he said, one God is the majority. Romans 3, 4 said, let God be found true, though every man, excuse me, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be found justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Good theology, good preaching, always leads people to godliness. The product of truth believed is godliness. And so when these avenues for false teaching attempt to gain hold, to, to get a foundation, to, to find a door into the church, we need to run again to God's Word to test what's being said or taught according to God's Word and reject what false teaching may arise. But more than the teaching itself, really what I want us to see in, t in verses 4 and 5 are these false teachers. We shouldn't just be aware of the danger of strange doctrines, but we should be aware of the character of false teachers. Look at verse 4. This is what it says about those who were teaching false things. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Jesus himself warns that false teachers will come from outside the community of believers trying to hide their true intentions. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, it says this, Beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Peter tells us that false teachers can also arise from within the community of believers, bringing doctrine that is destructive and poisonous. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But false prophets are also among the people. That's the church. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And Paul continually warned the churches that he served that if false teachers in their midst were left unchecked, the results would be disastrous. Go read Galatians chapter 1 or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Simply put, false teaching is not just a problem for other people and other churches out there. It's a problem about which we must be always on guard. If doctrinal aberrations can spring up in churches that were nurtured with the teaching of the apostles, what makes us think that we're immune? How then can we afford to be complacent about this? Paul is descriptive in these two verses regarding false teachers. Listen to these descriptive words about false teachers. He says they're conceited. 
They understand nothing. I say, it seems like I say every time I get in the pulpit, God's word's not exaggerating. So when he says they understand nothing, he means they understand nothing. And they have a morbid interest in controversy. Paul spends much of his letter to Timothy doing just this, educating young Timothy, this young pastor, on how he is to address this threat to the church. This letter to Timothy begins from the outset, warning of false teachers and of their wicked motives and the measures they use to sow confusion and unbelief and discord. According to the beginning of Paul's letter to Timothy, as a pastor, Timothy is to instruct the church against those who may have some part in this danger. Whether you are being fooled by false teaching or doing the actual false teaching yourself, you ought to be warned. If we just look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering administration of God, which is by faith. And then he really puts his thumb on these false teachers. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Guess what's not present in false teachers? Those three things. For some men... Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And here's their motive. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Strange doctrines, myths, speculations, fruitless discussions are all part of this deceptive scheme. In chapter 1 of this letter that Paul writes Timothy, he tells us the motive of these false teachers is that they want to be the actual teachers in the church. They want to be respected individuals, ones to be revered as wise, but they're not. The problem for these individuals is that they're unwilling for God's church to identify them as ones who can accurately handle God's word. Lacking the recognition of the church, they therefore lack the authority of God in their life as a teacher of his word, and they seek to impress others with their strange doctrines. These teachers tend to talk about things that they've discovered that everyone else around them is missing. And it's not just the leaders in their church who are missing what they have claimed to discover, but so have the faithful saints of old. See, these new teachings that they try to bring don't even match what's been taught for centuries from faithful saints. In their eyes, church history, revered pastors and theologians and elders of their local church are all lacking what they claim to possess. They confidently assert that they have discovered in Scripture what so many others have failed to see. These individuals have not only bought the lies of the enemy, but are propagating this garbage to others in the church. And the words of these false teachers stir up the following according to the text. Envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Robert Yarbrough, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, calls the list found in verse 4, I love, I love his title of the list, a five-fold collection of calamities. And these vices 
he says, are related to their origin, meaning whatever sadistic reason is in the mind of the false teacher, they have some sort of wicked fascination in stirring up these kinds of controversies. They get a kick out of causing division, stirring up stuff. Sadly, these type of individuals will make their way through the church from time to time. Again, we're not immune. At first, their faith seems genuine, but over time their heart is exposed, and rather than godliness, the wake of their words stirs up trouble and heartache for the church. Even sadder still is not their condition, but those whom they prey on. They prey on the weak, seeking to turn others against the church and her elders. Very rarely does the entire church remain unscathed when these people slip in among us. Often, others are caught up in their efforts and are duped by their schemes. And maybe the saddest of all, their own family suffers under the wake of their tyranny. These spouses and children find themselves torn between siding with their family or with the truth of God's word and his church. Oftentimes, these families, they see, the the spouse and children see the disconnect between all this theology that this individual talks about and the actual life that looks nothing like the life of Christ in the soul of man. If I've heard it once, I've heard it at least a dozen times. Examples of people sharing with me how their father led out in all these ways and gave the appearance that he was this godly man, but at home he was bringing about tyranny among the family. He boasted in what he taught and preached, yet there was no godliness about him. These false teachers can take many forms, but in the end, one thing remains true of them all. They lack true godliness. Their false sense of self, their confident assertions, their teaching will all eventually bear the fruit of their labors. And when it does, the evidence will speak for itself. The best way to discern the accuracy of these teachers is to observe their life over time. Just give them time. You'll see. Ironically, some of these false teachers like to be a part of churches that place a high value on theology and teaching. They presume themselves to be wise and worthy teachers. They presume that they will eventually win over the church's members and their teaching. But in the end, they only expose themselves as foolish men. And Paul's really clear in his letter to Timothy. We ought to be careful of those individuals who speak a lot about what they believe when their life does not reflect Christ to others. Ultimately, the character of these false teachers will expose them. But I don't want you to just see the negative. Paul has a positive aim in warning Timothy to warn his church. Look with me in verse 6. The third thing that we want to see is this, the benefit of contented godliness. The benefit of contented godliness. Verse 6 says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. I really don't need to add a lot of commentary to verse 6. It speaks for itself. In contrast to the false teachers, actual godliness is a means of great spiritual gain. When Christ and all his spiritual blessings are your desire, when Jesus is the foundation of your value system, 
then, then you'll know what actual godliness is. At the root of godliness is the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't have God apart from faith and hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Is that clear? If you cannot, in dependence on Christ, accept his sacrifice on your behalf, if you cannot, through the blood of Christ, receive the forgiveness he has earned for you, then you will know nothing of the godliness Paul speaks of to Timothy. True godliness is this. Jesus is enough. True godliness says Jesus is enough. Or let me say it like this. True godliness believes Jesus is enough. True godliness believes Jesus is enough in such a way that they live their life to testify that. Jesus is your greatest treasure. If all I had was Christ, I can be happy. Godliness is especially marked by the presence of contentment, according to verse 6. Paul goes on to be a little more specific about what is necessary to be content. He says this in verses 7 and 8, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. To be content, I need Jesus, food, and covering. Whether that's clothing or shelter, I'm not 100% sure. But to be content, I need Jesus, food, and covering. Everything else, not there. He doesn't list anything else. This is all he says. Church, when we seek to meet the needs of others in the life of this church or those who may have a need outside, we ought to seek to meet these basic needs in ministry. Jesus in their life, food covering. Listen to a couple of additional texts that help us develop this idea of being content in Christ. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It says this in verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. And then listen to what the wise man says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Just give me enough. Give me Christ and enough food and covering. Nothing more. And then Philippians chapter 4, a familiar place to talk about contentment. He says this in verse 11. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi who had physically met needs in, in his life. So he's writing to them and he says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of having an abundance and suffering need. And then that familiar verse, verse 4, 13, that's often taken out in context. He's speaking of contentment here. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content in Christ. That's what 13 means. Paul was not governed by his circumstances. Christ was Paul's strength in every situation in life. 
That's what he's testifying to. He was content with just Christ. He was satisfied. He was pleased. It it gratified him to have Christ in his heart. He was fulfilled. He was happy. He was cheerful that Christ was his, delighted. He wasn't worried. He wasn't troubled. He was at ease. He was at peace. He was at rest. He was comfortable with Christ and Christ alone. Does this describe your demeanor in life? Is Christ enough? Is Jesus really enough for you? Look with me again at the text as we return to the contrast of true godliness and look at this form of godliness that the false teachers present to those around them. He really zeroes in on verse 6 on this godliness that's accompanied by contentment, but then he bounces back in verse 9 to these false teachers and their, their motives. And the last thing that we really want to see is this destruction of the selfishly motivated. The destruction of the selfishly motivated. Look with me in verse 9. He says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. According to the text, there's a difference in motivation between the truly godly and the false teachers. Verse 9 says, those who want. They have these desires. These false teachers have wants and desires that are outside of Christ. And so they may even preach Christ. We know in Philippians chapter, um, chapter 4 where there's, there certainly is a, a, a gospel that, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, a gospel that was being preached that was true, but from wrong motives. It can happen. But I'm helped by the way Paul expresses these wrong motivations among those who are trying to get gain through their teaching. Paul says about himself and those who served with him, for we are not like many, peddling the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. She says, these other folks are, they're peddling. They're peddling the word of God to make money by selling what they teach, to get some kind of sordid gain by dealing anything that people will latch onto. They'll say whatever it is that might gain a crowd and gain a following. To trade in the Word of God, to try to get base gain by teaching something outside of the truth of God's Word, to corrupt, to a Adulterate. Peddlers were in the habit of adulterating their commodities for the sake of gain. It's an entirely different motivation than the men who God has called to pastor churches. This text is not about actual riches that we're about to look at, that he says in the text, though these false teachers would have certainly welcomed that as well. These peddling false teachers were trying to gain something for themselves by teaching their divisive doctrines. These false teachers were exchanging the life-changing effects of the true gospel on the hearts of men for their spiritual 
peddling myths and doctrines for their own selfish gain. True godliness seeks to benefit others. But a form of godliness that was prayed earlier in today's service from 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll get there in a few weeks, this form of godliness only has self in mind. But those who want to profit from teaching others will fall into temptation. The text says that these individuals will plunge into ruin and destruction. Look with me at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, Paul uses these words of desire to describe these false teachers. They have a love, a, a longing for money, which I believe represents any desire for gain outside of Christ. I certainly think money is one of those desires, but any desire outside of Christ will garner the same outcome that is described in verse 10. These wrong desires are the root of all sorts of evil. Longing for any gain outside of Jesus will result in a wandering from the faith in the truth. Wandering away from the gospel, wandering away from the reality that Christ is enough. Well, y'all know how wandering works, right? Wandering never happens quickly. To wander off in a heavily wooded area would be foolish. Finding your way back home can become impossible. This wording assumes that these individuals at one point had some sort of connection with the faith, but have slowly drifted away. This is the hard reality for some that we have known in this church over the years who are no longer with us. And that is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Nothing is actual gain except true godliness. True godliness is found in contentment in Christ. And when a person can genuinely say, Christ is enough, that's gain. When those aren't just words, but that's really what's in your heart. Now you're making gain. Jesus is of surpassing value. Suffering the loss of everything else is worth it. Gaining Christ is what matters most. Listen to the strong warning that Paul relays at the end of verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith, and then listen to this phrase, and pierced themselves with many griefs. To chase after money or any other desire rather than Christ is to inflict wounds upon yourself. To say it bluntly, it's spiritual suicide. And Paul tells us, or he tells Timothy, teach and preach these principles. This is of great importance. And so I implore each one of you to consider Christ and ask yourself again, 
Is he enough? Well, I want to conclude with just three little pieces of application that we've already really looked at in the text, but I just want to remind you of the things that Paul tells Timothy to warn the church in Ephesus about. Number one, beware of false teachers. Be on the alert. Don't embrace anything. Be familiar with God's Word. And if you're concerned you might be deceived, seek out godly wisdom from the elders and other faithful brothers in the life of the church. In the long run, false teachers will expose themselves. Beware of false teachers. Number two, gain Christ. Gain Christ. Do you want to gain Christ by faith? Go to Him. Confess your sins. Cry out to Him to save you. Get rid of anything that will distract you from gaining Christ. Set it all aside. Sell it all so that you can get Christ. And number three, find contentment. Find contentment in Christ. Is your heart content? Are you worried by the temptations of the world? Are you fearful that you might wander from the truth? Look to Jesus again. Observe his cross death. Be reminded that he rose from the grave victorious and know that he is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for strong warnings in Scripture like Paul gives to Timothy here in chapter 6. Father, I hope we hear the sober warning to be on the lookout for false teaching and false teachers. And Father, I pray that you would help us. If we haven't put our faith in you, if we have not trusted in Christ, if we're living life for ourselves, Father, I pray that you will help us to see the value of all the things we're pursuing in light of who Christ is. Father, I pray that we'll see Christ and we'll find him lovely. That we'll be reminded of his cross, his death and resurrection, and that there's greater value and hope in Jesus than anything this world has to offer. And Father, I pray for us as believers that you would be gracious to us, that you would not let us be distracted, you would not let us wander, but that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, and that we would live life like he is enough. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.